0: Our text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through chapter 11, verse 1. We're continuing and uh, finally finishing up our series on the Reformation and the five solas. We have come to the fifth sola, and that is Soli Deo Gloria, and we are coming to a passage that you probably wouldn't expect to cover this sola, so... It actually has a lot to do with the full, full-orbed way we glorify God. Not just the first four commandments, but covering also the last six. So let us turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through chapter 11, verse 1. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why, sh- for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews, or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me. As I am of Christ. Thanks be to God for His holy, inherent Word. This morning we come across a text that is one of the most difficult texts to apply to the Christian. I don't believe it is too difficult to understand. But it is difficult to apply because we have many voices that have either contradicted this text or have influenced us to think otherwise. Also, we have many voices who are trying to tell us what is the meaning of life. So we ask ourselves this question. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Well, we uh, recited that this morning from our confession. The Shorter Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we often forget what that means. We often forget what that means. Oftentimes, we only believe it means... Well, we obey the first four commandments. And then we forget the last six. But in actuality, to glorify God is, the, is coming from the fact that we are bound to God and to our neighbor. We have a duty to God and to our, to our neighbor. We see here that Paul is telling us how we glorify God In two different circumstances. He tells us how we are to glorify God in worship. And how we are to glorify God in a pluralistic society. Which would clearly apply to us today. And in that pluralistic society or pagan society. We will have Christians who are weaker in conscience than others. And we are to consider them. So first, let us see what he says in regard to the Christian's worship. Christian worship is to be set apart. He calls on the Corinthians, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of idols. And Christians are not to be engaged in such worship. This is an obvious command for the Christian. The Christian is called out of the world where he once worship false idols to worship the true and living God. But not only that, Paul wants to make clear that what we do in worship, that is, our manner of worship, who we worship, who we worship with, and where we are when we worship, are all important. Why do I say that? Because the problem that he is addressing is the fact that Christians were eating food sacrificed to idols in the pagan temple. If you question it, see chapter 8. That is where he began in chapter 8 with this conversation. And then he goes on to explain what it means to partake of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is only offered in Christian gatherings for Christian worship. So here we have two opposite acts of worship. That is, eating food sacrificed to idols in pagan temples and partaking of the Lord's Supper in the gathering of the people of God. He says to flee from this practice, not only Is it misleading to the weaker brother and could destroy him? That is, it could bring detrimental harm to his conscience, but it is also idolatry. It is idolatry. So he contrasts what they were doing in the temple with what we do in the Lord's Supper. He explains that the Lord's Supper is a participation, a fellowship, Or a communion. That's why many uh, people call the Lord's Supper communion. It is a communion in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship. We participate in what is signified in the supper. That is why the Lord's Supper is much more than a memorial, it is a participation. There is a spiritual reality as we participate in Christ's sufferings and benefit from his death, which was for us. Not only that, not only that, not only is it a communion, a fellowship, a participation with Christ and his sufferings, but it is also a communion with one another. We are also bound to one another because there is one bread. We who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Then notice he refers back to Israel of old to say that it is in the same way how they who ate the food that was sacrificed participated in the altar. They shared in the suffering and benefited from the death of the sacrifice that was made for them. They participated in the suffering of the animal, or whatever, it was killed, and benefited from the sacrifice that was made for them. So, if you participate in a pagan temple by eating the food that was sacrificed to an idol, you participate in its worship. He doesn't mean that the meat of the pagan Sacrifice, that you eat is anything, or that an idol actually exists. Idols are made up by men. They are made up by their imagination. They are not real. But going to the temple and partaking of the food is an act of worship. And who pagan sacrifice to is not the true and living God as revealed in Jesus Christ. They are false gods and false idols. So they are worshipping false gods and not the true and living God. What he is saying is that if you are a Christian, you should not engage in false worship. Our worship is to be set apart. Christian worship is the priority. And who we worship, how we worship, where we go to worship and who we are with when we worship does matter. When we worship, we worship with the people of God. We gather with the people of God who have the same understanding about what we are doing in worship. We come with the same understanding, worshiping the same God in Jesus Christ in the manner He has prescribed Like when we hear the word, sing praises, pray, and partake of the sacraments. It is set apart and it is different from any other religion. And it is holy. What we do in the Lord's Supper, like I said, is not a memorial. It is not a memorial. There is much more going on than what we actually see. There is a spiritual reality. And we are joined to one another. Joined to Christ as well when we partake this is why my conviction is that we partake every week but it's going to take much more for me to convince everyone else of this truth Um, but when we gather there is something happening that is to be set apart from the rest of the work week I've heard Christians say I can worship anywhere and still worship the same God I can go to a Jehovah's Witness temple Or a Mormon temple. I can go to a mosque or a synagogue and worship Jesus wherever I am. Because everything I do is worship. Paul says no. Because we have a different God. And so we observe our sacrifice differently. And they are not the same. If you are there on a day of worship participating with the false religion you are participating in their sacrifice to the false idol. And he reveals what exactly you are participating in. Since the food is nothing and the idols do not exist, what are false religions doing when they offer their sacrifice or worship? Their sacrifice is an offering to demons and not to God. Our sacrifice of worship, which includes the Lord's Supper, Is a sacrifice made to the one true God, just as Jesus Christ has told us, and how he is to be worshipped, hence why he instituted the Lord's Supper. While all other religions are sacrificing to demons, they are not sacrificing to the one true God. And Paul wants to make clear, you can't do both. You can't be a Christian on Sunday and decide to be a Muslim on Monday, a Hindu on Tuesday, an atheist on Wednesday through Friday, and a religious Jew on Saturday. That is not the type of freedom we have as Christians. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord And the table of demons. There is no mixing of religions. You can't take a little bit of Christianity with a little bit of this religion and a little bit of that religion, then make up your own. He warns shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Paul here is speaking of priority, and worship is the priority especially for the sake of our brothers and sisters. When coming to worship, we normally only think of ourselves and what we can get from God. Worship for most people is about just me and God and what sacrifice I can give to God. But in this context, Paul is also speaking of thinking about our brothers and sisters in worship and making sure We are not leading anyone else astray from worship. If not, if we are only thinking about ourselves when coming to worship, and not our brothers and sisters, he defines it as idolatry. It's idolatry. It is the worship of self. It is a priority for the Christian to consider who we worship, how we worship, where we are, and who we are surrounded by when we worship. Why? Because we are called to glorify the one true God in Christ. And this one true God in Christ is a unity. He is a triunity. In the same way, the Father and the Son are united and bound We are united to Christ, and we are bound to one another. And this was an issue during the Reformation, wasn't it? Many people have been writing that the Reformation was just a big misunderstanding over non-essentials. That the Reformation didn't need to happen. That it was just the doctrine of salvation, and that is nuanced. There's that word. That's a dangerous word. Nuanced. Whenever someone says, oh, it's nuanced. Don't worry about it. Please ask for clarification. Please ask for clarification. What do you mean by nuanced? But what was also at stake was the worship of God. What we understand to be true worship and false worship what is acceptable and unacceptable, worship. So yes, we are to glorify God in worship, but also we are to glorify God in the lesser things as well. Secondly, let us consider Christians living among each other in the world of paganism. That is, Christians living in the world outside of the church gathering for worship on the Lord's Day. How is it that we glorify God when dealing with other people, believers and unbelievers alike? He starts off by saying, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. All things are lawful is not saying that... I can go out and sin as I please. That's not what he's saying by saying all things are lawful. He's not saying all things are lawful so I can go out and commit adultery. Everything's all good. No, that is not what he is saying. He clarifies, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So that would exclude sin. That would exclude sin. And it includes everyone Believer and unbeliever alike. Remember, uh, the Pharisees would ask Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And, the Pharaoh, uh, and Jesus would respond, Well, everyone, right? And, and this verse right here, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, is the hinge of the rest of the passage. It's the hinge of the passage prior, and it's the hinge of the passage following. Let us consider our neighbor when we go to worship our God. And also let us consider our neighbor when we live out in the world. So what does this include? That all things are lawful. Well, it includes buying meat off pagans in the marketplace. See, Christians have freedom in the world. This is speaking of Christian liberty, specifically to food and drink. Every once in a while we get these uh, movements that say, we should only buy and support Christian based things. Uh, I guess there is a time and a place for that. But Christians are always in danger of becoming insular and unloving only having Christian friends and and never going out and reaching out. But, But Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. That is the pagan meat market. Meat that was sacrificed to idols. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is put in front of you. Ask no questions. Don't make a fuss. A pagan or unbeliever invites you for dinner. Hopefully, if you have friends who are unbelievers, whatever religion they are, they could be uh, Satan worshipers. If they put food in front of you, eat it. Hey, you agreed to go. You're disposed to go. Eat it. There is no room for picky eaters when living out in the world. Now, I know some may have dietary restrictions, but that's not what he is speaking to. He says not to raise questions on the ground of conscience. Why? Because food is nothing. Food is nothing. Food is food. Whether or not it was sacrificed to idols, food will be destroyed along with the body. And idols are nothing. They are made up in man's imaginations. The problem is the worship of the unbeliever that you are buying or eating food from. So here he's saying you're seeking their salvation when you are meeting and eating with them. As a Christian, we are free. As long as you're not partaking of the temple sacrifice of worship, eat it. Eat whatever is put in front of you. Don't make a fuss. Now, many of you who know know your scriptures, you're probably thinking, well, doesn't this contradict what the apostles told the Gentiles in the book of Acts when they said not to eat food sacrificed to idols? In Acts chapter 15, verse 29. But that was mainly because they were around other people, such as new converts, especially new Jewish converts, who were weak in their conscience and who were easily disturbed by it. It was a temporary command for the sake of others' conscience. Because then he says, if someone makes an issue about it and says, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Not because you can't, not because it is against the law of God, but for the sake of the person who just told you because he was concerned about you. You see, these folks, they have the knowledge of the scriptures. They have the knowledge of God. But they don't have the freedom as Christians. He is weak. Bound by every little thing he does. Including when it comes to food and drink. This is speaking of someone who is weaker in conscience, who cannot take it, who cannot stand it, he has not grown yet. This is speaking of someone who is troubled by you buying from or eating with a pagan, who sacrificed this food. This is a weak believer, because only a believer would be concerned and would be troubled troubled in his conscience if you were to eat food sacrificed to idols. You may know that it is really nothing but he doesn't he doesn't so instead of making a fuss he's saying put down the piece of meat and just walk away just walk away there's no room for an argument no don't bother fighting over it just walk away but this passage gets a little confusing because it sounds like Paul quickly switches his stance he says, for why should my liberty be determined or better judged by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give, give thanks? But considering the context, he is not switching his stance. He is simply saying, why should I use my liberty to offend and in turn be condemned by my weaker brother? Why start a problem? Why get into an argument over something so small? Now, he is not saying you are to agree with him and say, yeah, yeah, it's an offense to God. He's not saying that. It is simply to say, okay, I won't eat it. But in your head, you might be saying, I'll come back when he's not around. I'll buy it later when he won't be troubled by it. Because this has to do with someone coming up to you and confronting you about it. Hey, that was sacrificed. Instead of getting into an argument about, oh yeah, you're right, okay, I'll back off. It is nothing to make a big deal over. It is much better to live in peace and unity with your brother than to insist on eating meat that you could probably buy somewhere else or come back at a later time our first reaction is usually to snap and say, so what? I have freedom as a Christian. So what? So what? But Paul says differently. Don't you know you're bound to him? Don't you know you're bound to your brother and your sister? Spiritually? United to Christ and united to him or her? Now, some have wrongly applied this text over the years. Uh, this has been wrongly applied to the use of alcohol in public. I'll just go out, straight out and say it. And Paul does say, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Uh, the context, of course, he was speaking to those who were teaching, who were passing Questions, right? These are strong believers who were at a teaching level, who were trying to rebuke uh, other Christians for eating meat sacrificed to idols or drinking alcohol. He was speaking directly to leadership. He wasn't speaking of the weaker brother or sister. When he says drink, he is speaking of alcohol because that was the only drink that people had an issue with in those days, just as they do today. But some have said, you shouldn't drink alcohol in public just in case there is a weak believer around who you will cause to stumble. You should only drink alcohol if you do in private. But you see, Paul is not forbidding the use of meat in public. In fact, he says, it's okay to buy meat sacrificed to idols in public, in the marketplace. Unless a weaker brother says to you, that was sacrifice to an idol. Because we're not to live in public, always with an eye over our shoulders, afraid that someone with a weak conscience will be looking. The one who vocalizes their concern is showing that they are weak in conscience, and we are to respect that conscience, and to love that brother. Wait patiently for that brother to grow stronger. And a good way to do it is not to cause a scene over something so minor such as meat or going to the liquor store. Our Christian fellowship is much more important than food. Just as I've mentioned in membership class and over and over in my sermons, and just as Luther said, That the Christian has been freed from all men to be bound to all men. If we are not bound to our brothers and sisters, then we may not have been freed to begin with. Sometimes that is expressed by just being quiet and walking away. And this is how we glorify God in that context. Again, now, this does not mean that the one who is, who has a weak conscience is allowed to govern our Christian lives or that he is allowed to govern the church and what she does. The church is not run on the weaker brother's prerogative. Also, the church is not run on the stronger brother's prerogative. Because oftentimes, the... The stronger brother, his weakness is to be triumphalistic about his faith. No, we are governed by Christ's prerogative through the elders and pastors that he has appointed. But in these lesser matters out in the world, we are not to fuss and fight over it. Why? Why? I have a few points of application here taken from this text. And the first application is that Christians living for the glory of God are not to be unnecessarily offensive. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When some people read that, they take it to mean everything is worth a fight. Without getting the whole context. And they tag on, and it is all for the glory of God. With such pious emphasis. But like that saying goes, our strengths can also be our weaknesses. This is the case with the Reformed Church, isn't it? We've been known to fight for pure doctrine in the church, which is right. But sometimes we take the fight to an extreme and apply it unnecessarily to occasions we shouldn't. We believe that to glorify God is to fight over everything. Stand for your conviction, even when it comes to buying meat in the marketplace. It is my right to eat what I want. It is my freedom. Now, for the Christian, there is that freedom. But there is also a bond that we must consider, and that is to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because how we treat one another in the body is how we treat Christ. Now, picture that. When they walk through those doors, our brothers and sisters, how we treat them is how we treat Christ. And if we are not willing to give up the fight on the lesser things, those things that are not as important as worship and communion with the saints, then we are truly being driven by idolatry, self satisfaction, self indulgence, self worship, grumbling. Paul includes those who were grumbling against Moses in the wilderness. They were grumbling against their leaders with those who were destroyed by the destroyer. He says that before he tells us to flee from idolatry. Their grumbling against their leaders was rooted in idolatry. And If you sin in one area, you're sinning in all of them, right? If you're bound to God, you're bound to neighbor. If you grumble against your neighbor, if you grumble against your brother, you're grumbling against God. There is a way to conduct ourselves around unbelievers and believers alike. We're not to fuss over food that is given to us, and we are to honor our brother's conscience who is weak, And under food, when I say food or drink, we can include a list of other things that Christians fight over. Then maybe it is time to let it go. Maybe it's time to let it go. If not, if not, then maybe it is time to check our own hearts and make sure that it is not idolatry or pride that is driving our so-called freedoms. That we are not making our freedoms an opportunity for the flesh. And this is why I believe packing up and leaving church over some simple decisions and leadership. Decisions is sinful. And it is rooted in idolatry. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. We are not to be unnecessarily offensive, which means we are not to cause others to sin against their conscience. We are not to cause others to stumble into sin. We are to do whatever it takes in the small things to pave a smooth road to walk on for others so that they may grow in their faith gracefully without trouble of conscience. And I would argue that goes for unbelievers as well. We are not to cause them to stumble and we are not to be argumentative with those who do not believe. We would rather pave a smooth road ahead for their salvation. So my second application, living for the glory of God seeks to please everyone. Christians are called to be likable people. Among the church and among the unbelieving world. Paul says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Wait wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds like Paul is compromising. Didn't Paul say he wasn't a man pleaser? Now he says, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Well, that's not me. I'm not a man pleaser. But this is where distinctions become helpful. When it comes to the priorities, we do not compromise. There is the truth and the doctrines of the gospel. There is the worship of God, the doctrines of scripture. Paul does not compromise on these things. And we are not to compromise on these things either. And when teachers and leaders of the church are trying to impose things that are not clearly expressed in scripture... Then we are also not to compromise. It's funny, many denominations, the weaker brother that has a weaker conscience, have made their way to the leadership. And now we have all these legalistic denominations telling you what you can eat and what you can drink and where you can go in the evening, this, that, and the other. In those things, we do not compromise. But when it comes to food and drink, in light of our weaker brother, we are to think of them. Think of our brothers first and our neighbors when it applies. They invite you to dinner or to coffee, etc. We are no longer bound by regulations, but we are also not to cause a fight over it either. We are already free to do whatever, but we are free to be bound to our brother, the Christian, for the sake of his edification. And we are free to be bound to our neighbor for the sake of his salvation. He says, take care that this right of yours, this freedom, does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. The gospel is an offense already. The gospel is an offense already. The gospel of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles already. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to add to it. It's already going to cause divisions in families, in cities, in towns, in nations. We don't need to add to its offense. As someone has said, we don't need to be obnoxious for the gospel. Because at that time, we're not doing it for the gospel. We're doing it to please ourselves. Rather, Paul says, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. He seeks the advantage of others over himself. But what is that advantage? Why is it so important for us to act this way? My third application, for for those who have the manuscript, it's not the fifth, it's the third. I got the Roman numerals mixed up. It's the third application. Living for the glory of God seeks the salvation of many. Because there was a reason why he was seeking to please everyone in the things that are allowable. That that is the things that are not sinful. And that reason was that they may be saved. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And one of those blessings is the freedom we have as Christians. That we are no longer bound by these religious observances now this is a man paul who is easygoing for the gospel he has the gospel on his mind and all of these other issues that may be a big deal for other people he uses all of that to serve one purpose which is the salvation of men as i've said the salvation of men Brings glory to God. What we do. And what we are willing to sacrifice. To bring men. To salvation. Is glorifying to God. That's what it means. To live. Solely. Deo. Gloria. For the glory of God alone. Because that is the ultimate love. That anyone could have. For anyone else. It is doing whatever it takes. To get the gospel to men and women. If I give away all I have. And if I deliver up my body to be burned. Like the martyrs of old. But have not love. I gain nothing. Are we willing to risk our personal choices and freedoms. So that others may be drawn to a gospel that will save them. That's the question we should ask in this time. When Paul says all things are lawful. But not beneficial. Beneficial for what? Beneficial for the salvation of unbelievers and beneficial for the weak believer's conscience. And maybe one day, neither of them will be enslaved to superstitions and regulations. Because it isn't beneficial in the walk of a believer to impose my freedom on it. And it is not beneficial for an unbeliever to shy away from them. For the time being, we are called to keep first things first, second things, second things, third things third things which are all important for the life of the church. But when it comes to food and drink, these things are like fourth, fifth, sixth things and not as important as our Christian fellowship and the salvation of others. But you're probably asking yourself, wouldn't buying meat from pagans further support their paganism? That's how we think, isn't it? If we stop giving money to pagans, then they'll stop being pagan. That's not how it works. No. Not if we're using worldly means for the sake of their salvation. And mind you, food is a necessity. It may have been the only place to buy meat in town. So you're free to buy it. We are to do good to our neighbors. And in doing good, have a way to share the gospel with them. And and notice, sharing the gospel is necessary. Being nice is not enough. But kindness opens a way for the gospel. We are to do whatever it takes to be a witness to the gospel of Christ, even if if it means we eat with unbelievers or refrain from certain activities for the sake of weak believers. It is a call. This is a call to be a good witness to all those around us and a Christian example of love. And what does this all mean? What is this an example of? So my fourth application, it means we are to imitate Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ ate with sinners and believers alike. He wasn't bound by restrictions and yet he sought not to cause offense unnecessarily unless it was the truth of the gospel that he came to preach unless it was for the sake of the first things. Remember, the Pharisees and scribes tended to make the little things big things, and the big things little things that Jesus said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Just as we read earlier from Micah 6. What does God require of us? Do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. To glorify God is to consider God and neighbor. So the question for us would be, how are we treating our neighbors first? But also, how are we treating the body? How do we approach worship? Is it a priority? That's of first importance. Are we putting the needs of others first over our own preferences, freedoms, and rights? Not just to love them, but also for the glory of God. Remember Christians. You have been bought with a price, and you are not your own. You belong to Christ and His body. Each member here is a part of that body. How you treat the body is how you treat Christ. So let us treat the body as such, and live solely Deo Gloria. Amen.